Hey guys, welcome to the new episode of the Andy Social Podcast. And once you're done here, make sure to head over to Goat King Riders Club. Where we never let grammar get in the way of a good story. Good yarn. Yarn, story. Fuck, yeah. doesn't matter, does it? But <laughs> <laughs> well, it does when we're doing the promo for it. Oh well, that's what they're getting. <laughs> uh, also, come and check us out on uh, YouTube for full video versions. Enjoy yeah. the show. Hey, it's the Andy Social Podcast, and this episode is proudly brought to you by these bloody legends. Thank you very much to Andrew from Perth, Mitchie from Sydney, Ash from Daniloquin, Dan from Dapto, Rod from Rayleigh in North Carolina, Patrick from Canberra, Liam from Brisbane, Chris from Sydney, Brenda from Leeton, Tim from Canberra, James from Brisbane, Christian from Canberra, and Steve from the Gold Coast. These bloody legends are my top tier supporters over at Patreon. They are part of the wider community of awesome people who are backing your mate Andy in his little old podcast here, the Andy Social Podcast. Support starts from only a buck a month, dirt cheap, set and forget, you won't even notice it. And if you want access to the exclusive podcast or a bunch of free merch, free shit, there are additional tiers there to get amongst all of that stuff. Go and check it out over at patreon.com slash Andy Daly. Hey, welcome back, folks. Gather around. Gather around, friends. I've got a little story to tell you. It's episode 273 of the podcast, and my guest on this episode is the man himself. It's Skits. Matt Skits Sanders. He's one of the most iconic metal drummers that have come out of this country. One of the most iconic extreme metal drummers. I mean, this guy is an absolute beast. He's a monster behind the kit. And if you're not familiar with him specifically, which I guess I'd, I'd be surprised if you're an Australian metal fan and you didn't at least know of Matt, but... Um, I reckon you'd know at least one or two of his bands, if not all the bands he's played with over the years. I mean, really, the who's who of extreme metal in Australia. Of course, his baby being damaged that he formed in the late 80s in Ballarat and went on to have a really good career with them. Um, a bunch of albums, a bunch, bunch of releases from them, uh, but also went on to play with bands such as Blood Duster, Abramelin, Atomizer, Destroy 666, King Parrot, Hobbs Angel of Death, Terrorist, just... Heaps about sadistic execution, if I can even spit it out properly, because I'm so excited. And we talk a lot about that in this chat. I mean, this is a fantastic chat. Matt's an absolute legend. I've been waiting ages to get him on the podcast, and finally, um, we've we've got a great reason to to be chatting. And uh, he's got a tour that's coming up in April. So if you listen to this on time, I'm going to have links in the show notes for his tour, which is uh, Metal from the Grave, um, which is him and a cast of in my opinion, the who's who of uh, Australian metal from back in the day, backing him on stage and playing some amazing songs from bands or songs that have, haven't have really been uh, you know, remembered well or remembered or known uh, by people um, that are out and about these days in the metal scene. So he's uh, bringing these songs back to life, bringing them back from the grave, and uh, he's getting around the country. He's playing in Canberra, Sydney, Newcastle. He's also playing in Ballarat, hometown, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide, a whole bunch of stuff, a um, bunch of places he's playing. I'm going to have links in the show notes, of course. Uh, yourmatebookings.com is the place to go to order those tickets, but I'll have all the links in the show notes over at andysocial.net, andydowling.net. I'll put a few old school videos in there. I'll put links to all the bands that Matt's been a part of. But uh, you know what I'm going to say. Enough crapping on from me. Please enjoy this great chat with Matt Skits Sanders. a video that I haven't seen for a long time, but always sort of had yeah. me scratching my head was 
a video from back in the damage days where you guys were playing in Adelaide and it looks like something happened with your vocalist and you guys compromised and, and got a little bit creative and got up and played anyway. But uh, for some reason, you were brought to the front of the stage and your drum kit turned around and you played with your back to the crowd. Yes, what, I did. What happened? <laughs> uh, well, we did a few shows like that, actually, where I played backwards um, around that time period. Um, we didn't have a vocalist and, uh, I think we got, uh, guy from Bean Flipper, Rick, I think he got up and did about maybe three songs or mm. four songs, um, from memory, um, at a place called Cartoons. And I think we just put the drums up the front and did that because I was sick of doing the same thing. Yeah. I just thought that the whole concept of you put the drums up the back, you do all that sort of normal setup is just, I don't know, it was just the same old thing. So after playing lots of shows, um, we talked about it and I said, maybe I'll do that, something different. And we did it a few times and it was great. <laughs> I love it. It was, in, it was enjoyable because it was like, well, I'm not stuck up the back of the stage um, and it's it's more, I don't know, it's more confronting for from a um, punter's point of view. So, yeah, it was just something different. Had you guys, I mean, I I think the, the damaged era was a little bit before my time. I sort of came in sort of at the tail end of when you guys were just starting to sort of slow down and wrap things up. Um, but yeah. I sort of you know, sort of my early sort of years of getting into metal, I had a couple of damaged CDs. And so I was, that was sort of some of the early stuff that exposed me to Australian metal. And, yeah. um, but I never got to see you guys play. And, but I've always, it's, it's like a few bands from sort of your era where um, there was a lot of reputation that was out there as far as what you guys were like or, you know, what it was like to see you guys play live and, and, you know, just so many stories out there. And I think, you know, obviously over time the reputation builds and I don't know whether it gets warped or not, but, um, did you find yeah. it, did you find at times that people had started to form their own weird realities of what the band was and, and what the band became? Um, well, I guess, yeah, I guess so. In a way, um, the band sort of developed from a band that was um, playing like thrash covers and things like that at the very start, um, and it just developed into a more brutal type of band. So we we didn't really know how it was going to go, and we weren't really even sure how to present ourselves for the first couple of years, like the first. Two to three years, nothing really happened that was um, of any sort of significance. But because the band had developed into more of a brutal sort of thing gradually, um, we started to figure out what the band was going to be, um, how to um, put on a show, and uh, what sort of um, things we were looking for. So it was just a lesson in learning how the whole thing worked um, and how, I guess, I don't know, just like people's reaction towards the music, it just started to build and build and build. And by the time we did the first demo, 
things started to change um, quite a lot. And that year between the demo and doing um, Do Not Spit because we moved to Melbourne, mm. I think we learnt a lot from other bands as well, um, like the Melbourne metal scene um, and seeing some of the bands that were coming out of there, like Crossbait, um, Archeron, which was pre Bremelin, uh, Corpse Molestation, bands like that, that that sort of, I don't know, it captured my attention and it really um, took things up a couple of notches um, as far as like an influence and just bringing the intensity for ourselves along with all the other things we were influenced by along the way because um, there was all this new metal coming out, all this death metal. Um, the thrash metal scene had changed and was nowhere, nowhere near as prominent. So um, everything just sort of um, built a lot over maybe a couple of years, like 92, 93, 94, around that time. And once we started um, doing gigs around that Do Not Spit, era things just completely changed like the amount of people going to the shows the intensity from the crowd um the intensity with the, the band's performances um we were more confident um and things got pretty crazy from that point was it um, was there something i mean obviously you know the music holds up and it still does now and it's like you know you talk to any sort of, especially an Aussie metalhead, but there's even guys overseas who have dug into what Australian metal has been over the past several decades. And yeah. and it still holds up. But, I mean, apart from, obviously, the music itself, I mean, what do you think it, it was about you guys? I mean, you sort of mentioned sort of being more confident on stage and, and maybe a little bit confronting and things like that. But, yeah, I mean, even going to what we said before where... You, you were trying something different with, you know, pushing the drums to the front of the stage and turning turning your back on the crowd. Were you yeah. were you guys thinking at that time about how do we do things different? Is there something that we can do that's a little bit, you know, not shocking, but just something that's going to surprise people when they come and see a band? Um, well, that was one of the things, the turning the drums backwards. I think that happened a couple of years later, maybe. Mm. Um, I just think that we we're just trying to push it as hard as possible. And we we're, were pretty, like, um, hungry for um, the whole gig thing, like just trying to prove uh, something that, I don't know, it, just, it just, just kept on getting more and more uh, full on, more hateful, more uh, intensity. I, I, I was just really pumped at the time. Like, I was excited um, about the, uh, the whole... Uh, Australian metal scene and, and some of the other bands as well and going out on tour and the possibility of like supporting international acts was just like at that time it was just like uh, it was just very very exciting um, and we were all just wanting to, to, to keep pushing it as hard as hard as possible so um, it's, as far as like coming up with ideas is what to do i just i just think that i think the music was speaking for itself at the time mm. um and the performances were fairly intense um and we just kept on striving for that and things did change uh with the dynamics of the band over time 
with band members, but um, those first few years, like the the first, say, I think seven years of the band was probably the most significant. And then things just changed due to band members coming and going and um, changing things there. But um, that, that first seven years was the most important, I think. Mm. Did um did you find that within the band and even yourself during sort of those first few years that I mean just reflective of the music I mean when you listen to a band you sort of make a, a little bit of an assumption of what the people behind the music are like as well and you know yeah. one thing I always assume with with the band I mean you guys you know I think it was somebody else that coined it but you guys embraced it was the whole term hate core but yeah. I think like I always see I've always seen damage it's like this it's just utter chaos. It's just it's just totally chaotic music. It's just a totally brutal before brutal became a popular word. <laughs> in your face, like just really confronting stuff. And were you guys sort of like that yourselves at the time? Was there just a lot of anger and sort of aggression? I know this is probably like really stereotypical things that you could assume, but was it sort of like a real channel for you guys to get a lot of that stuff out? I would say that um each member definitely had something uh, like that. Like there was a, a like a common bond between members as to why we all ended up in the same band and playing that style of music and um, just uh, being influenced by each other in, in a lot of ways as well. We spent a lot of time around each other and so we got to know like the things that made each member the way they were. Um, and like when we started the band, we were teenagers. Mm. Like I was, I was, I think I was, um, I was 16. Wow. I just turned 16. So, um, and I'd, I'd finished up at school the year before and, um, I was, I didn't even know actually that I was even going to be having a chance to even put a band together at that time. But um, I had issues with um, stuff to do with um, my family's Christian uh, beliefs and things like that, and it really made me quite angry at the time. Um, So that was one angle for me, Um, and I started getting into all these these, um, thrash and death metal bands that probably were the opposite of what my family's ideas and values were. So once I started to meet other metalheads in my town, in Ballarat, um, and they started telling me what they were into and what they wanted to do and why they liked it, it just sort of um, came together from there. And the members of Damaged were all, I don't know, they all had the same sort of... uh, I don't like to use stereotypical words because we were teenagers, mm. but there was a, there was a lot of uh, venom, you know. Like there was there was a lot of venom uh, to to play. I don't know extreme music, and we just we just all bonded over that, and um, it just came together gradually, um, step by step. And all the different influences came together and um, the attitudes and everything that came out in the end um, to make that all happen um, 
was the the uh, production of damage and hate core and whatever that sort of ended up being. So yeah, pretty much just a bunch of blokes from a town that was very boring. <laughs> like Ballarat, Ballarat didn't offer fuck all. Yeah. Like you could go to the movies, you could go and get some booze, you could walk around the streets. There, there wasn't a lot to do really. Uh, so, so for myself, playing drums was a really good outlet, and I had a lot of anger. So, putting that anger into the drums rather than uh, doing something stupid like getting yourself in trouble and ending up, uh, you know, creating crime or doing anything like that, I decided to play drums and it really worked for me. It was a good outlet and it's still the same thing that I've always used as an outlet for those emotions or whatever you want to call it. It's like a, it's such a a common thing out in like, well, probably any country town in any part of the world, but I think regional (laughs) Australia, like, I mean, I, I was lucky, I think in the grand scheme of things, because I lived in a bunch of like regional Queensland towns as a kid and probably got to my sort of teenage years, I'd moved fairly close back to, to Brisbane at the time. So I... I, I think I escaped a lot of those, uh, that sort of delinquent behavior or where you've just literally got nothing to do and you don't have a lot of outlets to be able to express yourself or you don't have yeah. like-minded people and all that sort of stuff. But I saw a lot of people I grew up with who never left those towns that I went through oh, and, um, yeah. and, uh, and not have like that opportunity to be able to, you know, play drums or play music in general and have gone down that path. And just, it's, uh, it's such an ugly thing, but it, it makes sense. And, yeah. and uh, when I saw like, you know, and you know, when I originally saw that you, um, you had grown up uh, in Ballarat, I thought uh, it's quite interesting because a lot yeah. of these regional places have got these weird sort of communities of people where, Obviously, you've got the small town vibe, which is yeah. good and bad, but in, you've yes. also got um, a lot of people that are, are heavily religious as well, um, a lot of religious uh, communities. So it's interesting definitely. that you mentioned, mentioned that with your family. Was, was, that, was that a case that um, just like a generational thing where like, you know, your grandparents and just, it was just all through your, your sort of, your family where they'd all, all been religious or was it more so just your parents that sort of became religious or how, how did that all work? Well, my uh, family, as far as my uh, relatives go, aren't really involved in anything to do with the church. Um, maybe superficially mm. at some point, but um, my mum and dad were and and still are quite um, involved um, re- religiously and with church and stuff like that, um, which is fine. Um, that was that's that's their prerogative, um, and the rest of my family as well, um, my brother and sister um, as well. So I just I just didn't like the vibe. I just didn't like what it stood for. I didn't like how it made me feel. As a child, I had some weird ideas about it, and it just kept on going on um, until. When I was around 14, I just said, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not going to go. And so I stopped going. And they were disappointed, but um, I just couldn't see myself as 
uh, someone that was going to pursue um, Christianity or uh, religion as such. So, um, yeah, that's just that's the way that all turned out. Did you find later on in life where you wouldn't I wouldn't say accept accept it, but more of an acceptance of the circumstances around like your family? Like, did you did you have resentment? And the only reason I'm asking this is that. Yeah. I went. I went through similar stuff myself. Um, you know, okay. my, my parents are, are very religious and a part right. of part of their local church and part of the community. And yep. I, very similar to you, I was going to church every week and sometimes multiple times a week, depending on whatever the events were. And yep. um, and then when I was getting sort of into my teens, that's when I sort of put my foot down and said, "Well, I don't want to go." And I remember like my mum saying, <laughs> "We go as a family." And I said, "Well, there's no point it being a family when half the family doesn't want to go." And my parents sort of looked at me and went, "Well, okay, you got you got us there." And and same sort of thing. They were disappointed, of course. They they wanted me to be a part of it, but yeah, um, you know, obviously, you know, understanding that there's no point dragging a kid along to something that they're they're not getting anything out of. But <laughs> I've I've like really struggled with it over the years. Um, I still have a lot of resentment for it. Um, yeah. And I have a lot of uh, prejudice against it. And and I think there's a lot of pent yep. up anger that I have that um, I don't think I've, I've completely addressed myself either. So yeah, I'm curious to see how you sort of digested it over the years. And do you have a different outlook now compared to sort of early 20s or anything like oh. that? I would have to say I actually think it's almost identical um, to what it was when I was a teenager. Uh, I just probably shut my mouth more um, <laughs> when it comes to it because I'm just like, what am I going to do? Um, you know, when it's brought up or someone in the family says something about something in relation to me or trying to guide me or trying to make me think that I should – pursue something to do with the church I don't really say much I just sort of go okay yep that's that's good like I, I mean I've heard it a lot of times um and it sounds like your situation is extremely similar to mine um they wanted me to be um at the church because it was you know the family goes to church mm. as a whole not oh the son just stays at home because he decided he doesn't want to do it anymore. Um, but I was very adamant that I wasn't going to do it. And I feel the same way to this day. Um, and as far as uh, like being told anything about it now, I still feel the same. Mm. I, don't, I, don't, I really don't think it changed at all. Um, and some of the music has reflected, obviously, my sentiment about that uh I, I might i might not have actually even probably felt the way that i do about that had my family not been religious mm. it could have been completely different but i'll never know that so i can't even speculate really it's just that's the way it's turned out it's uh i mean yeah it's pretty it's pretty clear when you sort of look at all the bands and the releases you've been a part of over the years <laughs> and you've had some influence in i mean <laughs> Yeah, there's there's no bones about it, mate. Like you know, you know where you stand with a lot of this stuff, and um, yeah. But I mean, as as you said before, like you know, you you yeah, especially as as a teenager, and you just, I mean, fuck. I mean, even if you've got a, a pretty pretty cruisy life as a teen, it's still troubling. Yeah. It's still difficult to to manage and try and work out where you fit into the world. But uh, to have exactly. all that extra anger and be able to utilize that 
that energy, you know, in your case with the drum kit and then, and then getting together with other guys. I mean, you know, obviously yeah. it's, a, it's a healthy outlet, isn't it? Well, I think so because, well, putting that energy into creating music, art, something that's got some sort of uh, something rather than it just being put into something that's going to turn into trouble or you end up putting yourself in jail or you murder somebody, uh, I probably think the drums are a better option yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for longevity for longevity of life maybe. <laughs> I mean, there, there was certain things I probably did along the way that weren't conducive to um, staying healthy. Um, but, um, you know, at the end of it, I feel like the drums have been – the right thing because I've put my energy into the drumming for over three decades mm. and I've stayed away from a lot of the things I might have ended up doing that might have been more destructive. I don't know. Did you, I mean, what were the, because um, actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but when we last caught up, which was like a year ago now, we were having yep. a quick chat in Adelaide yes. and um, yep. correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I vaguely remember you telling me that you don't drink. Yes. Um, and haven't drunk for a long time or if at all. Did you used to drink back in the day? Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So how many, yes. how many years has it been since, uh, since you had, had your last drink? Uh, this time around is a good couple of years. Yeah. Um, I did uh, probably um, around the time when I played in uh, King Parrot, I didn't drink at all. Um, I probably uh, had about three years where I didn't have a drink. Um, And then I had a few drinks uh, after that time. And then just in the last couple of years, I haven't had any drinks um, because I just, I I don't really feel like it does anything good for me. Mm. It's not really enhancing anything. It's actually making things probably worse. And I feel like the drumming's more important than the drinking. So I just um, stay away from, from drinking because it's it just doesn't do me any, any favours. Was that a hard thing to, to, to come to that realisation to make that decision? Or was it just sort of like one I – mean, I, might, I might be oversimplifying it, but it might be just be one day and you go, you know what, fuck it, I'm not going to drink, and then it just lasted for a couple of years or however long that period of time was. <laughs> Uh, it was a bit more complicated than that. I I was surrounded by lots of friends who are still my friends, and um, we used to do a lot of drinking, and uh, I really enjoyed that. And uh, it was something that took a while for me to really um, get over. Like, mm. it was actually just like, oh, you know, the, the idea of not being able to have a drink was um, not good. Mm. Uh, I was drinking like at one point probably nearly every day um, and that could have been for a good couple of years. Uh, so when I came to the realisation, it probably took me a good couple of months to actually stop and a doctor actually just said, you should just slowly stop drinking, not just stop drinking suddenly because it's probably not good for you. Yeah. And probably the amount of drinking I was doing at the time um, that's probably why, um, uh, probably drank to excess way more than I probably ever wanted to, <laughs> but, 
But the metal scene's part of that, you know. Like uh, when I was like starting Damaged and we started doing gigs and then we started doing a lot of gigs in pubs. Uh, we'd do the gigs and then we'd drink and that would be practically every week. Uh, and sometimes the partying got a little bit too much and it took a long time to really take a good look at it and just say, look, I just don't want to do it anymore. I just think that I got to the point where I look at it and go, well, I've been doing it for like a very long time and I just don't get the same thing I used to get out of it, you know? It's not as, it's not as fun as what it used to be. Yeah, I think I think it gets to that point where you sort of realise you have this. I mean, not everybody has this moment either. But a lot of people, yeah, just continue on. But um, I noticed, you know, at you know, I I still drink, but I don't like the quantity that I drink versus what I used to is is a lot yes. different. And yes, but I, I relied on you know I relied on booze in the early days. You know, it was a social yeah. lubricant. It was a way to to get the get the balls to walk up to somebody and talk to them if you didn't know who they were or you they were yeah. in a band that you liked and you wanted to chat to them. You go and yeah, knock a few drinks sure. back and, and 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 fire up the courage to go and have a chat and and then suddenly that you were validated with that. You go, Oh well that's what I need to do each time. And so yeah. <laughs> it just became a, a weekly ritual at gigs where you just get get absolutely hammered and just and you know, it was fun, but I mean it's it's uh, it's not sustainable, is it? I mean it's just fucking it catches no. up with you. Yeah, I think, look, honestly, it just got to the point where I just didn't like the way that it made me feel and I didn't like the hangovers and I didn't like the idea of not being in control anymore um, because it got to the point where I feel like it was completely too far. It was just too much. And I liked the idea of being in control, knowing what I'm doing and... um, Focusing more on the the drums than than anything else. That's that's far more important. Did you? I mean, you don't have to answer this one, but was <laughs> you know one of those one of those moments where you sort of had that sort of wake up call to yourself. I mean, did you have a moment where you were just fucking you were just down in the dumps and just at, you know at the at that lowest of low that sort of motivated you to go fuck? I need to get my my life in order. Was there was there a particular moment that sort of that you, there that, has, you, that you want to share? <laughs> there, oh, there, there, there has been. There yeah. definitely has been. Yeah, when you've got that, like, massive, like, party hangover from, like, three days of straight drinking yeah. and you're shaking and you feel completely sick and you've got no control over the, um, the state of your mind, the, the state of your body, Um anything you've got no control whatsoever uh you don't feel like you can cope mentally you don't think you can cope physically you can't do anything you don't want to do anything you can't talk to anybody it's like yeah that's the that's the moment where you go that's gone too far i can't do that anymore so uh i won't specifically say what moment it was because I think I there was probably a couple of times that happened where I was just like, nah, this is just it's ridiculous. It's absolutely way too way too much. Did you um did you I mean obviously you said look, there's a little bit of a transitional time where 
you sort of you know sort of easing up a little bit and getting to a point where you, you know you didn't you didn't need or didn't feel the the urge to to go and have that drink as much as you used to but yes. i mean you know when we caught up we were at a gig there were people yep. boozing left right and center and yep. beer and drinks everywhere and yep. i mean Obviously, I mean, just the way that, you know, we were having a chat, I mean, you seem to be comfortable and had no issues with being out and about with a lot of other people drinking, but no. did that did that take a long time for you to sort of get used to that and to, to be happy enough to be out and about where there would be a lot of what used to be temptation? Uh, yeah, actually, I would say, yeah, it probably took months, actually. Mm. The first few times I walked into a venue... Um, without drinking, I probably just felt like I was completely um, in the wrong place. Um, you're standing there, you've got mates there drinking, you've got people who are asking if you want to get a drink, um, all this sort of stuff, the pressure's there. You either go, I can deal with this and I'm not going to go there or I just have to leave. And I just thought if I if I can't stand here and do what I need to do or watch a band or or whatever and and and, and just leave, then I'm I'm defeated. Like I won't be able to do what I want to do. Um so I had to just get used to it and I had to uh just get like a thick skin really and just go, whatever, I don't care. It's not what I do, and whatever they want to do is fine. That's their choice. Um, I respect that, and I just don't even, yeah, like I just thought if I can't get past that, then I just I can't do it. So I just kept persevering, really, to the point where I was like, I'm completely comfortable. I can go out, and I don't care if I'm out for like six or seven hours. Um, drink as much as you want around me. It's totally fine. And I think what you said before, like where you sort of had that thought to go, well, the drumming's more important than getting tanked and you want to <laughs> you want to make the most of, of what you've built over the years. I mean, you put so much time and effort into into music and so to yes. compromise that with booze, I mean, it's just shortchanging yourself. So I guess walking into yeah. a venue, it's like, do I let the booze win and I just throw everything out the window because I can't even walk into a venue to even appreciate music, let alone get on stage and play it, or do I just <laughs> just just dig deep and buckle down and just go, fuck it, I'm just going to tough this out and, and make it work? Yeah, well, I met other people that had stopped drinking too and they were just saying what their experiences were like and I just thought, well, if they can do it, I can do it too and it's totally fine, I'll just get on with it, so... I was I was happy that I actually took that step and I could actually do it and it wasn't a problem at all. Was um was Matt uh from King Parrot uh not drinking when you were in the band? Because I know that yes. he's been sober for a few years. Yes, actually I had a discussion with him uh prior to me joining the band where he actually talked to me about that and um he was talking to me about being sober and I said, yeah, well, I haven't had a drink for like, I think it was like six months at that stage. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it's good when you can talk to other people that actually are going through the same thing. Like they've, they've cleaned up what, whatever they've been doing. Um, and they've got clarity and they're getting stuff done and it's just, I don't know. It feels, 
it feels pretty good when you get to that point and you realize it and you go, okay, well, I probably did a lot of things in the past I wish I didn't do, but it's too late now. So whatever, I'll just do what I can now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, Maybe it's just me getting, you know, slowly getting older and, and trying to mature myself, but I just notice that more people are, I think they're just far more accepting of people's choice to not drink. I think years ago, yeah. it was so much more of that, you know, the old peer pressure, your mates and everyone's going, oh, well, if, yeah. if you're not drinking, then how can we all have fun? It's like, if my fucking choice to drink has got nothing to do with whether you have fun or not, mate. Get, no, do, exactly. do whatever you want. But people will get offended by it and... But I think these days what I notice now, and it's probably yeah. just the fact that you, we're all connected online we can see each other and get see what everyone gets up to. But, yeah. you know, like some, like Matt, for example, you know, he'll he'll throw a post up online and just, you know, say, you know, he's you know seven or eight years or however many years uh, sober and everything like that. And the amount of fucking yeah. love that he gets from everybody just going, fuck yeah, that's so cool. Congratulations. You know, I mean, yeah. I just... I. I can't, I can't recall like that ever happening or to that extent years and years ago. It was just, it seemed to be more taboo to not be, it'd be like, what's wrong with you, mate? Like, why aren't you, why aren't you having a drink, you you pussy? You know, it's like, come on. like. (laughs) Oh yeah. Like in, in the nineties, in the metal scene in the nineties, everybody just drank without question pretty Mm. much. I don't, I don't think there was hardly anybody that I met that didn't drink in the metal scene. So it sort of seemed weird, that whole idea even. Like, if if someone had said that to me in the 90s, I would have said, that's a joke. Like, there's no way. That's not happening. But um, these days, I think a lot of people making decisions and choices to steer away from certain things or change their life or whatever, I think that's a good thing. So people can say whatever they want. They're not the ones, if you make a decision, they're not the ones that, have to live with the consequence or the, you know, the, the outcome of it. So making your own decisions, I think, is a, the ultimate thing to do. I always laugh because, you know, the old stereotypes around like a metalhead or a metal fan and they're always like against the grain, do the opposite, don't be a sheep, don't follow the pack. But they all, but we, we all do the same thing. We always wear like the same clothes and anyone who does anything slightly different, you go, oh, yeah, fucking poser or anything like that. It's like... It's like, come on, mate. Like, I'm trying to be different here. I'm trying to do something that's against against the the crowd here, and and drinking's yeah. one of them. It's like one of those things where we all conform into what's accepted in our little community, and uh, and and, oh, and yeah. luckily, luckily it's changing, but it's there's still a lot of that stuff floating around. So yeah, it's it's tough if you wanna you wanna make that decision yourself, and you go, you know what, I want to. F- you know, I want to either ease up or, or give something up and just make yeah. some better choices. And you really got to find those people, don't you? I mean, if you don't have those yeah. people around you, you need to make some some pretty heavy decisions to maybe distance yourself from from uh, some of that uh, some of that temptation or the bad influence. It changes your outlook, and and certain people you end up like they just sort of disappear into the background. Like people that you used to hang out with just don't call you anymore, or you know because they know that that's not part of what you do and if that's part of what they like to do a lot or whatever. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you're looking after yourself and making sure that you're feeling better or whatever mentally, physically, then uh, I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, more power to you, I reckon. Yeah, I think so, definitely. Um, With the – going back to drumming. um, Yes. I mean – 
ever since I've known of you and your reputation yep. and then eventually bumping into you over, over the years, I mean, you have the reputation of being this this incredible drummer, um, a drummer that's worked with so many amazing Australian metal bands. You've got you've got legacy, which makes you sound really fucking old, but you've got <laughs> you've got legacy, and and you've got this fantastic reputation. But I mean, obviously, you know, you've honed your craft. You've been working on it, and especially in sort of the later years, you're making a lot of better decisions in life. Would give you a lot more focus and drive to to really sort of hone your craft even more. But Going back to like your early days of yeah. the damaged, I mean, when did things start to open up where people started to show interest in you specifically rather than just the band and these other opportunities started to pop up for you? Oh, I really think it was around uh, late 93, uh, 94, uh, 95, around that time. Um, when Do Not Spit came out, um, it changed everything really. And we were playing a lot more shows, bigger shows, more people were coming. And I just think that um, opportunities started to present themselves and other bands um, asked me to do some stuff. And some of those things were I really enjoyed and I really still uh, look back on those things and I'm really glad that I did those things. Um and I think after I'd started drumming, like, at school in 88, so it really took, say, about five years to really get everything in perspective with the drumming uh, because I started off uh, at my school with a guy that used to come there and once a week and he'd do, like, a group lesson and he would teach, like, rock drumming um, funk, uh, Latin percussion, things like that, jazz. And so I learnt a bunch of those things. But then I wanted to learn how to play thrash metal um, and I, I gave him a, a tape to listen to and he said to me, I've got no idea what's going on there. <laughs> I, 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 put a, I put Slayer on this tape and I put Metallica on this tape. In uh, This is in 88. And... He just said to me, he said, look, that just seems completely removed. I have no idea what's going on there. <laughs> That's ridiculous. And uh, I'm sorry, I can't help you with that. And at the same time, there was another student who was a couple of years older than me. And he came in with a double kick pedal. And I was like, double kick pedal? This is what I want to learn. I want to learn double kick. So he brought it into the school and he left it there for a while and I had a, had a go on it. And so I started teaching myself how to play double kick. Um, and after I finished up at school the following year in 89, um, I was starting to buy um, a lot of thrash metal vinyl and I used to slow it down on the turntable with my finger yeah. so I could hear the drums. Yeah. And I just started teaching myself how to play uh, blast beats, the double kick stuff, um, all the tricks, all the little tricks that I started to pick up gradually from just listening to albums. Um, and, and then just 
starting to like see other drummers as well when I started to actually play like the first few gigs. There was a couple of drummers that I saw in Ballarat even. There was a metal band there and I started watching that guy at a couple of gigs and and then when we went to Melbourne uh, in 92, uh, things just started to pick up and I was watching these other drummers and I'm like, okay, cool. And then I was listening to more all the new release stuff at the time, death metal, black metal, um, and started to really get highly influenced by a lot of different stuff all at the same time. And practicing, we were playing, we were playing about uh, practicing uh, damage rehearsals some weeks, like four or five days a week. Wow! And then we were playing gigs on the weekends sometimes, and then um, we just did that constantly for years like we all we did was just uh, rehearse play gigs rehearse play gigs um that was our life so i was just just so into drumming to the point where it was just a daily everything like every single day smashing away um and because we were talking to other bands and we were meeting other bands playing gigs then a few other things started to pop up and then I uh, started doing things like the sadistic execution tour to Europe and things like that. I mean, I look through I look through the list of bands and I probably haven't even got a complete list here, but there's just so many like bands that have got their own reputations or they've carved out their own reputations over there, just them alone yeah. and then and then you having sort of, you know, a period of time with them as well, which just sort of adds as an extra element of um of oh, I don't even know what you what you'd say. Like just it's just like this extra element of of energy to what like just you know if I look at it from a high level, you go oh the guy from Damage you know goes and and plays some shows with you know early nineties Blood Duster or you know mid <laughs> mid nineties Destroyer six 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 or yeah you know, doing the European tour with Sad X and and all this sort of stuff and I go fucking hell imagine like what a combo like <laughs> what a combo of just just craziness and chaos. Yeah, I loved it. I, I still love it. I really um, enjoyed trying to um, do things with other people, um, different types of music, different experiences. Every band pretty much that I've ever done anything with have got different uh, things about even the style of drumming that it is, even though you'd be like, oh, well, there's not much difference between that extreme metal and that extreme metal. But you'll find, like, structurally and just um, musically, there's so many different things. The dynamics of some bands are completely different, let alone the personalities that, that fuel that that sort of energy um, and why that band sounds like that and the actual people themselves and how they actually live and how they think and their concepts, their art, all those sorts of things that were... Um, I was just fascinated by really um, because I never really thought from the get-go when I started doing music or playing drums that anything would go anywhere near any sort of level of anything, really. I just thought it was just going to be like maybe I'll smash out some tunes with a couple of guys in the shed. I don't know. <laughs> and, and just things just escalate and – you just get that involved in it and you become friends with all these people in the scene and you spend so much time around it 
that it's inevitable that that energy is going to keep on going somewhere to the next point and the next project and the next uh, band, the next uh, album you might record or, or whatever. And then I come up with my own ideas about what I want to do. It's just lots of different ideas, bands, projects, uh, lyrics, whatever. It's just um, really fun, like uh, seeing what this next thing is going to be. Or like being asked to do something is probably one of the most exciting things that you know I could imagine. Someone says, "Do you want to do this?" I'm like, um, "Of course, I want to do it." <laughs> you know, like yes. yeah, just you know, like it's just something that I always really enjoyed. What the next thing might be, or how this path is going to go to the next um, whatever whatever it ends up being. Recording, yeah, whatever. um, Was there somebody like in these other bands that you you worked with, you know, and some bands you were were hanging out with for a bit longer than others, but were there there any people in particular from these bands that sort of, uh, what's uh, what's a better way of describing this? Okay, I haven't got a better way of describing it, but sort of blew (laughs) your mind as far as just somebody who had maybe not a direct influence on you, but just so surprised by... The, who they were as people because, you know, I look and, and I've met some of these guys over the years and <laughs> a lot of these guys are fucking characters, to put it lightly. Yeah. But, but were, there, <laughs> were there people over the course of the years that sort of just just really sort of influenced you or sort of blew you away and go, oh, fuck, like what a, what a person, like what, a, what an interesting person to work with? I actually would have to say undoubtedly – the sadistic execution was just like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> I, I was just like, I fucking heard about this band years and years before I met them. And I was just fascinated by the whole idea of like, you know, these guys look like complete fucking mental cases, which is what, which is what they were trying to put out there. But yeah. when I actually fucking met them, I was like, fuck, these guys are actually mental. <laughs> like, like they're nice. They were nice. They were good guys. Like I could have a conversation with them. Um, no dramas at all. But like some of the stuff that was going on was just fucking outrageous. And it remains probably the most outrageous fucking thing like that I could possibly have really imagined to be part of because I don't know. Like I, maybe I felt like I was conservative in a lot of ways compared to <laughs> fucking these guys. And then they asked me to go to Europe and I was like, uh, oh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll fucking go. Um, hopefully I don't fucking die. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought in the back of my mind that something could go fucking completely fucking pear-shaped. But it was, it was hard to say. It was really hard to say. I had to go and experience it for myself. Um, so... I did, and it was just fucking nuts. What, I mean, what memories do you have all these years later of that tour of Europe? Because, you know, I, I, I've known Dave in particular for years, and I've bumped into uh, Chris, but I haven't seen Chris for, for quite some time. But, um, yes. But I, I did a, po- a podcast with Dave a few months ago, and, and we've always sort of bumped into each other at gigs in Sydney, and he's, look, he's a character in a half, like in, yes. in himself. But he's such an interesting guy because... 
He's one of the nicest guys out there, but at the same time, you just can't predict what he's going to do. And he, <laughs> and part of it, you don't know whether he's joking or he's serious and it's really hard to keep up. So, I mean, yeah, what memories do you still have all these years later of, of that time with them? <laughs> well, I remember the gig that actually uh, Damage played with Sadistic Execution um, at the Bolo uh, in 90. Four. It was around late '94, and there was a bunch of other bands playing. It was like, I think it was like about six or seven bands playing. And uh, Chris Hayes actually approached me um, after I'd played, and he said, uh, "Hi, I'm Chris Hayes. I just want to know if you'd be interested in coming to Europe." And I was like, "What the fuck? Like, <laughs> what an intro! <laughs> this, this is." Chris Hayes from Sadistic Execution, and I, I just was like, I, I didn't even really know what the fuck to say. I'm like, um, um, I didn't even, I didn't even know what, how to react or anything. I think I was just um, sort of speechless, really, because I thought uh, this could be fucking interesting. Um, and do I have the ability to fucking pull this? shit off, you know, like I looked at sadistic execution like this is the most extreme thing to come out of Australia. Mm. Uh in ninety four I was like I'd heard some of the some of the stuff and I thought that's pretty outrageous. So uh I said yes and they said all right we'll figure out how to do some rehearsals and just took it from there. But the rehearsal process was just very interesting um, because there was more drinking going on than fucking rehearsing. <laughs> and, and I remember because um, Chris's Chris's parents lived in in Melbourne, yeah. And uh, so one night there was a party, and he said, "Oh, look, let's party tonight at my parents' house." And it was his brother's twenty first birthday or something. So we went there and we stayed overnight and the next day we meant to go and rehearse, but the next day was a fucking write-off. So <laughs> that didn't happen. And there was also Dave Slave came down to Melbourne also to rehearse myself and Chris. And um, Dave got pretty pissed off with me and Chris because we ended up um, doing a bit too much partying. <laughs> He's like, come on, we've got to fucking rehearse. <laughs> Well, yeah, 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 we'll fucking do it tomorrow. <laughs> and, uh, like, we, we got the music together. Like, it came together really well. Um, and I went to Sydney for a couple of weeks as well. Um, and we were rehearsing every day. And I was having a meltdown because some of the songs were just, like, the technicality behind it and stops and starts and all sorts of weird mathematical equations that Dave Slave had fucking made up for these songs. He goes, oh, this is a fucking six of this and seven of this and fucking two of this. I was like, fucking hell, man. What is, I don't know if I can do this. I remember I remember just fucking threw my sticks on the floor a couple of times and just walked out and they just fucking laughed. I said, you'll be right. You can fucking do it. And then I was staying with Dave Slave and we had a couple of parties there a couple of nights and Slasher, I don't know, you'd probably yeah, know Slasher from Sydney. Slasher um, just got the Bowie knife out and put a couple of nice gases in his arm and just sat there in his blood and had a good <laughs> laugh. And 
was like, wow, this is fucking awesome. Like, <laughs> this is uh, interesting. So, I don't know. It was just like from from damage, like damage uh, as far as like hanging out with, with those guys. We'd just drink and that was basically it. This was like another fucking, I don't know, totally different sort of uh, culture, you might call it. Just totally blew my mind. How, and then, how'd you go yeah. in Europe, though? How, I mean, that would have been an absolute fucking... I'm just imagining, like, you guys just trying to coordinate yourselves and travel to the other side of the planet. Like, it just seems like fucking what could possibly go wrong probably did go wrong. Fucking everything went wrong. <laughs> fucking everything fucking went wrong. Every day was fucking, like, on the verge of fucking disaster. <laughs> I've got clear memory of that. Like, some of the stuff that happened was just, like, I, I can't, I can't believe that that was a two-week tour, and it all happened within those two weeks. Yeah. Um, from the get-go through to the end, I mean, we nearly got kicked off the tour like a few days before the end of it um, because of the punch-on that happened, um, which you may have heard of before. Mm. Uh, yeah, that 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 was that was pretty intense, and really. Um, <sighs> Well, it sort of felt like it was inevitable in the end. Like, it was just like the band was just, it was too long and it was too much time together in the same place. <laughs> um, and it just got to that point where Chris got frustrated with Dave and there was some sleeping tablets involved and there was booze and it all went to shit and Dave had rock in a headlock Chris didn't like that. Chris told him to stop doing it, and Dave didn't listen. And then Chris proceeded to punch him quite a few times and broke his broke his little finger on his on his left hand. Oh God! Which is his doing doing all his uh, notation, um, and of course playing sadistic execution guitar isn't exactly um, very easy, obviously. No. So. <laughs> so he was uh, he was rather muck and um, yeah, broke his hand of course and his hand was swollen like probably two and a half times the size of what it should be um, but ended up playing the, the, the last few gigs no problem despite having a injured hand um, and uh, the help of um, an Italian doctor and some suppositories and some <laughs> some whiskey, and he didn't care. He didn't give a fuck. He just did it. Oh god, amazing. Plus, plus, Chris was doing shows where he was listening to the Merciful Fate on a um, Walkman, on a tape Walkman. I don't know if you remember those things. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the tape yeah. Walkman. He's listening to fucking Merciful Fate whilst he's playing the gig. And he's getting into the songs in between the Sat X songs, like, you know, like headbanging and loving it and whatever, and played the whole fucking show, um, start to finish, listening to Merciful Fate. <laughs> and I'm like, how the fuck do you do that? And then there was, a, there was another, another show in, that was in Rotterdam, and Statistic Execution played one and a half songs uh, until the show was over for Sad X uh, because Chris had 
been given a joint. Someone gave him a joint. He doesn't smoke. Someone gave him a joint and he was very stoned and got up on stage at the start of the show. We are playing the first song and then he got to a part where it's just himself going to do the count-ins and he's just standing there like he was like a stone statue, just like <laughs> like he forgot where he was at, what he was doing. And he's just like – and then he's just all of a sudden he's just remembered – Bashes back into the riff, band comes back in, finishes the first song. Dave's looking at me going, what the fuck is going on? And we go into the second song and we had the same sort of problems. And then uh, Dave and Rock walked off the stage and myself and Chris were still playing. And then we sort of like got to a part where Chris had stopped. I said, well, that's it. So it was one of the half, one of the half fucking songs into the set, and we walked backstage, and the fucking tour manager went ballistic. He said, "Fucking get out there and fucking play the set." I said, "We'll tell him to do that." I can't fucking tell him he can't do it. It's impossible. He's not going to be able to do it. Oh mate, I mean, how how did the how did the crowds respond to the band? Because I think um. Like you guys were touring with, um, fuck, who who was it? Absu and fucking yes, uh, Impaled Nazarene. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, obviously, I guess in theory, on paper, like the crowd would would appreciate what you guys are doing. But um, was it yeah. was it still pretty fucking you know eye opening for for the crowds that you guys were playing in front of? I felt like some of the crowds were quite bizarre and very standoffish. It's like they'd seen everything. And they just, you had to be, I don't know, whether they were impressed or whether they were unimpressed or whether they just were in their black metal trance, death metal trance, whatever the fuck it is. And <laughs> it was just, a, a couple of times I observed what was going on and I felt like it was just like, they're looking at this band going, what the fuck is going on? Who the fuck are they and what's the deal? Um, and... Some of the crowds were quite receptive and I felt like there was people, obviously, because um, sadistic execution had been known in the European metal scene and some of the old school um, Scandinavian black metal bands had known about Sadex for a mm. long time and it was a bit of a thing going on there and some of the bands had, um, you know, been seen wearing the fucking T-shirts and photos and stuff like that. So it was known in that, that scene but like it was just weird it was like you know they're spitting on each other and uh rock was using certain types of aussie slang um <laughs> sort of abuse you might say i'd like to say it but i won't say it because it yeah. will cause some fucking issues um <laughs> but he started like doing like abusing the crowd calling them certain names and um like, it was hilarious just watching. Like They're just like, what the fuck is going on here? This guy's using this weird – he's got this weird accent. He's from Australia. He looks like a maniac. Um, and it was just very, very, uh, very bizarre and um, interesting to see how it all interacted. Um, 
And look, it went pretty well in the end, I think. But there was moments where I was like, is this going okay or what? (laughs) (laughs) Between the band members, the crowd, the fucking, I don't know. It was just, it was strange. So, I mean, after after that tour, did, I mean, I know Sadex overall, like the grand scheme of things, didn't play a lot over over their, you know, air quotes career. But was it a case afterwards that, so you naturally just parted ways with them and just didn't really do anything with them? Or was there plans to do more stuff? Or were you guys just all burnt out with each other by the end of it? I feel like it just sort of, um, we got to the airport and it was like, all right, take it easy, thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I I stayed in touch. Like I, I was playing a lot of gigs in Sydney, so I'd see Chris quite often and Dave because um, I used to go out to all the metal gigs mm. um, all the time. So I'd see them and I'd talk to them and um, I never, ever did another thing, Sad X, after that tour. But um, I ended up playing some stuff with um, Chris. Mm. Um, I did a couple of solo Chris shows, um, 2010, 2012. Um, and that was basically it. It was just like, well – I think that's the end of that. That was fun, and uh, we survived. And thanks for the fucking chaos. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, I, I'm assuming that there was just, like, all the bands you played with ever since then, just nothing matched that. I mean, everything would have been so much tamer in comparison to, to that period of time. I would say that cities of executions at the top of the list – there's nothing ever going to, for me, I don't think, um, as far as the whole aesthetic of everything from start to finish will ever come close to just that whole experience. That That's like a one-off for me as far as that goes. Um, and I don't regret it for a fucking minute. Um, it, was, it, was, it was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, there was moments where I thought it was just going to, fucking implode but um i think that's just the nature of extreme music and those personalities extreme music and extreme personalities yeah extreme personalities and people that are unpredictable sometimes that sometimes that pisses you off and other times it's like okay well it is what it is you just accept it um that's part of the fucking deal with some of those things you just accept it and go well i wouldn't be doing it um, if I decided that I was too sensitive to this shit, like you can't be too sensitive. You just go, I'm playing with a band called Sadistic Execution for fuck's sake. You got to roll with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's sort of a bit like that. And, um, yeah, there's, there's so many funny things about that whole tour. There's a lot of fucking things that happened in that time. Uh, even with Impaled Nazarene and just that whole experience. Absolutely. Um, it was pretty funny, and we were all on the same tour bus for the two weeks. Oh, God. Um, so that was pretty hectic. Oh. There was there was fucked up shit. Like, I woke up one morning, and Micah's sitting there uh, on the bus. It was like one of those nightliner buses, so it's got like a couch at the back of it. It's got a TV and a table and stuff. It's got all the bunk beds all down the, the fucking – on the top level. Um and he's sitting there with his sadistic execution long sleeve on and it had all these stains all over it. And he just looks at me and he goes, I'm so proud. I've got Chris Hayes' 
cum stains all over me. <laughs> and I went, what? I said, fucking what? And he said, yeah, we had wanking competition last night. I went, oh, okay. There's all these fucking filthy Euro porn mags covered in fucking slime. (laughs) So that that was the sort of thing you just sort of like wake up and go, okay, cool. That's fucking great. Oh, fuck. Yeah, every day waking up just going, what fucking chaos am I about to walk into? Like, what 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 the hell's going to fall apart today? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I had the Impaled Nazarene guitarist one night. I was sound asleep in my bunk, and someone was trying to get into my bunk, and the next minute I know it was the guitarist from Impaled Nazarene, and I said, hey, man, fucking what the fuck are you doing? And he did not even know I was there. And he just kept on climbing into the bed to the point where I had no choice but to get out. <laughs> so he slept in my bed. And I had to fucking find somewhere else to fucking sleep. <laughs> so it was just fucking crazy. Or every day and then, you know, you got guys from fucking in Pardon Nazarene at fucking seven o'clock in the morning walking around drinking bottles of vodka on the bus, uh, you know, and just completely fucking slaughtered. And then that night play a flawless gig. Yeah. I'm just like, what? <laughs> How the fuck did you do that? <laughs> you were drinking vodka like about fucking, I don't know, 15 hours ago, you were fucking slaughtered. God. Just crazy. I just couldn't believe it. And just, just uh, eye-opening experiences from, you know, seeing how a, a European tour goes with like a band from Texas, a band from Australia and a band from fucking Finland. And then you got two bus drivers from England, a fucking tour manager from Belgium, uh, a label manager from France and just all hell breaks loose. (laughs) And nearly nearly got kicked off the fucking tour, um, you know, because of the punch on in the middle of Germany at fucking two o'clock in the morning. And I had to talk them out of it because I said, well, look, uh, we don't know where we are. It's 2 o'clock in the morning. It's freezing cold, and um, we're not getting off the bus. So you're just going to have to deal with it. And they said, all right, well, Dave needs to go to fucking bed, and he needs to shut the fuck up, and we need to uh, just be calm for the rest of the tour. So... The next day was in Italy where Chris got the suppositories and uh, Dave, Dave was like, I'm going to have to play the gig sitting down. I can't stand up. I've got too many bruises on my legs. My legs hurt. And they're like, you're going to stand up and you're going to play the fucking gig normally. <laughs> so he stood up and did the gig. Oh, my God. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, coming, coming back from all this, I mean, yes. you know, yeah, I mean, looking, looking at the timeline, it sort of looks like you sort of just kept you just you just hit the ground running. You just kept like you didn't slow down. Like more and more bands that you're playing with and doing all sorts of stuff. But sort of in hindsight, or even coming off the back of that, I mean, did you sort of have your eyes open to different ways of approaching, whether it be back in damaged or working with other bands that you'd learnt from just or what not to do, like being with the guys in Sadex? Uh, yeah, I guess I guess that's a fair statement. Um, yes, definitely. Uh, I felt like because of the way that all went, 
Well, nothing ever happened. Um, and no disrespect to fucking anyone about the sad ex stuff because I fucking like totally, totally respect how that whole fucking thing uh, went, regardless of whether it was bad or good or whatever. Um, but I just thought that maybe um, going on tour, if we we're going to go on tour with international bands and stuff like that, we just have to fucking stay relatively calm and just do the job as professionally as possible and just try and um, keep our shit together because I just didn't want to fuck up any opportunity. Mm. Um, and that's just something that I just had in the back of my mind the whole time was I'm really looking forward to fucking opportunities that um, could come um, as a result of just doing this fucking music. So I just uh, looked at it like that, like – it's. I would like to do this stuff for a long time, so let's just try and fucking keep our fucking heads, you know, uh, from fucking doing too many crazy fucking things. <laughs> I think you used the word earlier about something else about uh, sustainable. It, you know, you got to find yeah. a way to, to just keep things sustainable for as long as possible. And I think. Um, I don't think Sad X, I mean, I'm speaking on behalf of the guys, but I don't think in the back of their mind they were thinking about sustainability or all the long term. I think there was like, you know, just just go hard, burn out ASAP and just like leave the biggest mark possible, the biggest stain possible just to ensure that people don't forget forget who they are. And- yeah. Look, there was, it was a very they, – they made a fucking massive statement and they did really well. And I think that um, – the way that the band came across in interviews and everything, the way they did what they did um, was just like, it just summed it all up. Yeah. It was just chaos, exactly what the fuck they called their albums, you yeah. know, like chaos. Uh, we're deaf, fuck you. Like, <laughs> what band? It was fuck all bands that, at that time that really were doing something that was like super, super – like there was a lot of originality with a lot of bands in the scene, but this particular thing was for Sad X was their own. It was their own fucking thing. It was just like, who gives a shit? We're going to do whatever we want, and if you don't like it, then fuck off. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. I think I think they they were the master masters at marketing, and without even having sort of any sort of scientific approach to it, I think they were just they were so into what they were doing and. Just creating yeah. trouble. Like, I think, like, even Dave, like, you know, whether it be sort of me having a chat to him on the podcast or talking to him over the years and he's telling me these stories and, and I'll quiz him and go, like, where'd that come from? He goes, oh, just for a fucking joke. Just just for a joke, you know? And just he downplays it so hard, but he just goes, oh, yeah, just taking the piss, you know? Just whatever. Just yeah. like, we just want to just shock people, you know? And it's like, yeah. well, it fucking worked. I mean, yeah, it just... it, it worked. It, there's so much conviction behind what they did, like... There's no half ass. Like they just went in, went hard. Oh, so. musically, musically. I mean, fucking day was ramming out fucking ridiculous amounts of notes in short periods of time, <laughs> um, and just fucking hammering the fuck out of it. And Chris is just an incredible um, guitarist. Like I, I fucking, I, I've seen a few guitarists that are really like brutal and out of control, but Chris is fucking out of control. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in every sense of the fucking word, his homemade guitars and that crazy shit and just the fucking way that he he plays with those sculpt fretboards and, oh, just out of control. I've yeah. never seen anything like that. Oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so 
I'm, I'm keeping on the time because I just thought, fuck, yes. man, I could talk to you for fucking hours about this shit. And there's, there's so many. Yes. I've only just scraped the surface with you as well. But Yeah, sorry about that. No, no, not at all, mate. I think uh, the more the more talking, the better. And maybe maybe we'll <laughs> have to. I, I think when we spoke last time in Adelaide, I, I said, oh, let's let's do it in person. And obviously all the all the shit hit the fan COVID. globally since then. Mm. So yeah. I think uh, when you do come come through town, I might try and pin you down or another time that you're in Sydney. And we'll, we'll, do a, yeah, we'll do one in person sure. as well and have a chat. But um, yeah, you got this. You got this tour coming up, and yeah. um, it it looks. I mean, for anybody who was part of the scene back in the day, I mean, just this looks to be absolutely perfect to go and sort of just reconnect with all these great songs that you've been a part of over the years. Uh, but yeah. What I guess, where did the idea come from, and then ultimately, what is it, and who's who's coming along with you? Okay, so the idea. It took me a while to come up with the final sort of concept to it because originally I was asked to do like a drum clinic and a drum clinic to me sounds fucking clinical. Mm. Like it just sounds to me like going to a music store, setting up a drum kit and playing in a music store to like – 20 people yeah, and and you just do that and you play like five songs and then that's the end of it and they ask you a few questions. So I was thinking about that and I thought, oh, I fucking hate drum clinics. I don't, I don't go to them myself and I, you know, it's just a personal thing. Like I just feel like it's just sort of weird. Mm. Um, so I come up with this idea of, of uh, playing music from bands that don't exist anymore. Uh, so bands that don't play live anymore, um, bands that don't actually operate anymore. Um, and one of them was my band Damaged mm. because that band hadn't done anything since 2004. Um, and there'd been talk over the years of, um, you know, maybe trying to get that band back together to play some shows and it never happened. There was uh, talk about it a few times, and I just, yeah, nothing ever happened. So um, I thought I'd like to play some of those damaged songs again. Um, and, you know, it's the first time in a long time. Uh, the other band was is Terrorist, mm. um, which I did um, from about 2005 to about 2008. And I just wanted to play a few songs from that and uh, do that with a couple of old members of the band. And I did invite a couple of guys from Damaged to play Damaged songs. They declined to do it. Um, I ended up getting someone that is also a friend of mine um, who also plays in Manicore, Steve. Steve Legend. Um, yes, Steve, Steve Watts. And so Steve said uh, he – I actually asked him if he would do uh, the damage stuff with me. Um, and then things just sort of like went from that to doing some Manicore stuff as well, um, which is a band that uh, Damage played quite a few shows with back in the day, back in the like, 94, 95, 96, 97, that sort of time frame. And so uh, it all just sort of started to come together. Uh, Misery was a band uh, that I really enjoyed. I just like the band a lot. Great band, yeah. And 
Yeah, and I just I'd played a lot of gigs, like damage played gigs with with Misery back in the nineties, and I really enjoy uh, their music. And so I got in touch with the guitarist, and he said yes, and I uh, uh, he he also spoke to the bass player and he also does vocals, Damon, mm-hmm. and he agreed to come on board and do it as well. So I'll actually be, be playing um, like a mini misery, like a mini, mini misery set um, for the Brisbane show. And the other part was the Hobbs Angel of Death stuff, which I played um, with Hobbs for about uh, a year between 2012, 2013. And um, I got in touch with the guy that, that played bass um, on those tours and like I played with him that whole year. And um, he, that is Bo Remy, yes. Yeah. And he, he said yes, and his son uh, will be playing guitar as well. Right. So, um, yeah, so it all just uh, came together. Um, after a lot of negotiation and trying to figure out how it was going to work. And um, I came up with the name for it, uh, Metal, Metal from the Grave, because it's like bands that are being brought back, or not band, not so much the concept of the band, but the music mm. from those bands. I'll, I'll make that clear, the music from those bands. Yeah. Um, because it's not bringing the bands back, it's bringing the music back just to play it live. That's basically it. So um, I just thought it was a great, great uh, opportunity and an idea that could really work. So that's what it is. That is a great idea. And, I mean, as I sort of over the years dug into like the – the archives of, of Australian metal and trying to work out who's who and you bump into some some older guy at a metal gig and you say, oh, yeah, like, you know, do you play in a band? And he's like, oh, yeah, you used to play in a band. So you tell your band, so you write it down, you go home, try and work out, you know, who the fuck they were and eventually you find a CD somewhere or something <laughs> like that or a demo tape. And yeah. um, But there's so many of these bands that now, like, unless you were there and or you were sort of at that time where the bands were still just lingering around as a thought – you know, you'd, yeah. have, you'd have no idea. Like, I mean, the, the new guys coming through now and the people getting into metal, it's just so hard to get, dig back and try and find these people and these bands. And luckily yeah. some of them have been, you know, some of the music's been chucked up online and you can find it and some of the stuff's been re-released and things like that. But, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's cool that you're doing something like that. And I like the angle where you're sort of saying you're bringing the songs back from the grave because in the end, I mean, you know, the, the the band members that make up these bands who created these songs, I mean, yes, they're integral and the songs wouldn't exist without yes. them. But yep. but not everyone's around anymore. Um, and, no. And the people don't hold the songs back. The songs, once you release them and you put them out there, they, they, they've got a life of their own. And so... Exactly, you, yeah. You've got to keep, keep them alive. That's exactly right. So the, the only opportunity is if somebody plays it live, if you would like to hear them, then, yeah, that's the only way I can see that that's going to happen. And I just thought, why not? Like, I want to play these songs on the drums. I haven't done them for a long time, and the opportunity's there. So maybe some people that have never seen this stuff um, and probably some old-school 
people will come and see this stuff and enjoy something from the from the dark past. It'll be a it'll be a heavy metal reunion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting. It'd be interesting to see what sort of crowd ends up, you know, coming to some of these shows because I don't know if there will be people that are uh, younger or whether there will be people that are like it'd be a mixed sort of crowd. I'm not really sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see, and uh, you know, I mean, just given what's been going on for the past year or so, it's just, I mean. I know that the, the tour already got pushed back once and I mean, no yes. doubt you're sort of going, fuck, I hope this goes to plan. I hope there's no fucking, mm. you know, touch wood, touch everything to make sure that you yeah. know, nothing's jinxed. But, um, man, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped for it. It's such a great idea. And, and I think a lot of people are going to be excited for it. And I just, uh, yeah, I hope, hope just everything goes to plan, mate. Cause, um, it's, it's such you. a, such a great concept. So that's happening in April, I believe. And, um, yes. I'll, yeah. I'll chuck a bunch of links up so people can, can work out, uh, where, where you're going to be and yeah. uh, go and buy some tickets and all that sort of stuff. And, um, you've got a drum studio as well that you've been, uh, you've been sort of immersed in. Yes. Um, I actually got this planned into a house I got built, um, that I moved into at the end of 2019, I um, had to get a drum room built uh, for this house because mm. I haven't had a drum room um, pretty much the whole time I've ever lived wherever I've lived. Um, so um, I've uh, soundproofed it and I made a um, drum riser for it and got myself recording equipment um, and I've recorded in here already. I recorded an album only a couple of months ago, and um, it's all just uh, slowly coming along quite nicely. And I'm enjoying the fact that I can actually play drums in my house pretty much whenever I want. So that's that's the dream, isn't it? Like just yeah. the, like you would have. I can only imagine, and just knowing mates over the years, like good luck trying to like practice anywhere. Like it's not it's not <laughs> like you can just unplug a guitar and sit in the corner and just noodle quietly. I mean, you've you oh. really don't have much, many options, do you? No, and it just—it just was one of those things where you constantly have to go to a studio, pay the money, set up the drums, pack up the drums. If you don't have like a lockout on a room, which you can't really afford a lockout on a room hmm. at a rehearsal studio, it just costs a fortune. So um, this time, I just thought, well, if this is going to be my house, I'm going to get a fucking drum room. <laughs> And I'm going to have a nice big fucking setup. So um, I'm actually sitting in here now um, whilst I talk to you. Um, so I've got all the space for a nice, you know, big eight-piece um, double-kick metal kit, which is exactly what I wanted. And um, I'll be doing recordings in here. I've got another recording to do in the next few months, um, just projects that um, some people wanted me to do. So... Yeah, I'm really enjoying the fact that I finally got a drum room. All right, folks. Now, if you're listening to this on time, uh, if you're in any of these places around the country where Matt's going to be touring, definitely go and check him out. Go and say hello. Um, He's going to be playing a lot of classic Australian metal songs from back in the day and maybe some songs that you've never heard of. Um, One of the things we spoke about in this episode was how a lot of this stuff is just hard to find now. So I think for a lot of us or some of us that are a bit younger, who have only sort of just come into the Australian metal scene probably the last, you know, 10, 10 or so years, 
um, probably haven't had the chance to be exposed to a lot of uh, these amazing bands that were circulating around the 90s into the early 2000s. And so what Matt's doing is just fantastic to bring some of these songs back to life, back from the grave, as, as he said. So uh, definitely go and check it out. If you're in Canberra, Sydney, Newcastle, Ballarat, Melbourne, Adelaide, Brisbane, all that stuff will be over at yourmatebookings.com, but I'll have links in the show notes, of course, over at andysocial.net, andydowling.net. Uh, Matt's new studio, his drum studio that he's built, uh, Blast Abyss Drum Studio. Uh, he's got a Facebook page, and so I'll have a link uh, to that in the show notes as well. And, of course, click through on the podcast player, like wherever the description is in your little podcast player, wherever, wherever the fuck you're listening to this through, you should be able to click through and there'll be a bunch of links in there. But uh, if you come in the Sydney show, I'm going to be there, so uh, come and say hi and uh, – and we'll go and uh, we'll we'll go and enjoy Matt and, and Co on stage, blasting out some some killer Australian metal. So I'm really looking forward to that. Now before before we wrap it up, blah, 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 before, before I fucking wrap it up, uh, Patreon Patreon.com/slash Andy Dowling. Thank you so much to all the legends that have been jumping on. If you've been paying attention, just go back a few episodes. I actually put up one of the Crazy Talk Patreon podcast episodes on the Andy social feed. I thought uh, I might make one of these public and you can have a listen. Uh, so there's a bit of ridiculousness in there, a bit of fucking dog shit karaoke, uh, some stories and just some old school advertisements, just, I don't know, just a bit of fun. So if you enjoy that, you like the gist of what what that all is, then uh, come over to Patreon and uh, join the tier to get access to the uh, Patreon podcast. Every week it comes out. And uh, if you want access to free merch, free stuff, then uh, join some of the tiers on there. But uh, to be honest, I really just want as many people to join the $1 tier as possible. Just join, sign up. If you've listened to more than a couple of episodes of the podcast, I'd love to get you, get your support back your mate Andy in this podcast. And for me, it the money is a massive help. It covers a lot of the costs. And you'd think that this would be pretty streamlined and pretty uh, sort of cost efficient, but uh you know, the costs creep up in your hosting and production and all this sort of stuff um, that uh, that that sort of encompasses, you know, running a podcast. So a lot of that stuff is getting covered and supported by the Patreon community, which I absolutely love and really, really appreciate. But for me, what I love the most is having this group of people that are just backing me and motivating me to get out there and have more and more great conversations with with Matt, like on this podcast episode as well. So if you've enjoyed the episodes over the years, you've listened to more than a few and you love what I do and you want to see it continue on in the future, please uh, consider join, joining for the $1 tier over at patreon.com slash Andy Dilling. Uh, now, we've got another episode coming out on Wednesday um, of this week. I'm recording these in advance, so I'm a little bit out of whack here. I'm trying to remember when all these episodes are dropping, but uh, this is coming out on Monday, and on Wednesday, I'll have my second episode of the week, and it is a return guest, uh, somebody who hasn't been on the podcast since the, uh, I don't know, 140-something. Let's just leave it at that, so you can narrow that down. There's about 10 people in there, so you can you can narrow it down and work out who might be coming back to have a chat um, yeah, and, uh, they've just released a book and, um, we've got a few things to talk about, talk about. So, uh, looking forward to sharing that one until then folks keep sharing around, do a bit of social media, love, leave a fucking rating and a review and all that sort of stuff. It goes a long way. It actually helps a, a hell of a lot. So please, a couple of extra clicks and taps on your phone. Um, it's just absolutely huge for me, especially if you if Patreon's not your thing. So anyway, uh, you know, enough crapping on for me until next episode. Take care and ta-ta. Larry. Larry, please.